Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. We're here for the Invested Podcast, where we are going to learn Warren Buffett-style value investing, also known as rule number one-style investing, where we focus <laughs> on a few critical things that you need to know in order to build a portfolio a lot faster, potentially, than you can by just putting your money in a pile of diversified things you don't understand. In oh. fact, yeah. So by building a portfolio, you mean like making money. I mean making money. Not buying a bazillion stocks as quickly as you can. Exactly. It's more an entrepreneurial enterprise. It is Ooh, more like in the sense of I am going to learn to be good at this thing and um, and and I'm going to build I'm going to own a business in this thing that I've learned and then as I've learned more as I own this business I can expand uh, my business reach into industries that are similar to this one so for example at Chipotle Mexican Grill I'm going to start by getting really good at burritos but once I've really <laughs> figured this out I am going to then open a Chinese food version of my burrito business. Oh. <laughs> See what I mean? I'm expanding. I was imagining myself like making a burrito and I was I thought I'm pretty good at making burritos. <laughs> and and by the way, how would you decide if you were thinking seriously as an entrepreneur um, about owning let's say a, a natural quick food restaurant like like Chipotle. And I don't I don't think you can get a Chipotle franchise, but if you could, you would be looking at it, you'd say, okay, what should I do? A friend of mine, um, shout out to Brent Hamill, who's a tremendous guy. I got to play uh, polo with him in uh, Sarasota. And, Whiskey uh, Polo Club. Yeah, it's, it's really, he's just such a great guy. And he made um, a, a very successful life for himself by starting out with Domino's Pizza as a Domino's Pizza delivery guy. Um, and then he realized that the people who were running that store were, you know, no more smart than he was. He could figure out everything that they knew. And so he worked the store, worked the store for a couple of years, and then he uh, applied to become a manager. He went through their domino management training and they gave him a store to manage as an assistant manager. And then he became a manager that took another year or so. And then he realized that Domino's provided a way to buy the, his own Domino's pizza parlor that they would provide. I mean, they the money. provided financing. Yeah. If he would qualify through their school, <clears throat> go through their school um, and 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 was successful there and was a successful manager, that was a requirements, then they would put up the money if he could find a place that they would uh, they would uh, agree to put a Domino's. They, you know, they don't want to put one up and have it fail. So they yeah. would have to agree to the site that he found and the deal that he was making. But if they agreed to that, they would put the money up. And get this, Brent told me that they were putting the money up at 18% interest per year. Jeez, that's a lot. Which really incentivized their new managers to save every penny to pay that loan off. Yikes, no right? kidding. Because yeah. we know that 18% a year is a tremendously high rate of return. If we can get that rate of return in our investing, we'd be really happy. So 18% a year loan payoff. and. And if and so he he found a place uh, that nobody wanted to put a Domino's pizza. Literally made a deal with the gangs in the area that he would deliver pizza to them at the gang house if they would not rob his guys. Oh my gosh! 
and he, talk about entrepreneurial business tactics. Honestly, I mean, it's so cool. I love business stories from entrepreneurs. And he got the first one, which is always the hardest one, right? And then he began to expand and expand and expand. And now he has 42 of them. And wow. he gets That's to play polo in Sarasota. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And so if you go out investing like that, I think you're going to be on on pretty firm ground. You know, you start off, you recognize that that there's a learning curve. You you pay your dues of, of learning. You know, you try not to lose money while you're while you're learning. You be patient. You wait for the market to give you the opportunity at a great price and you get your first one. And from that point, you start to learn about businesses that are similar to that. So like Chipotle moves into the Chinese food uh, area. You know, Brent has diversified across other businesses, across real estate, as he's learned to be a better and better, more knowledgeable business guy. And that's all this is. Um, Manesh Prabhai wrote a book that I've recommended here on the podcast called Dondo Investing, which is, the, Dondo is the word uh, from India of business. It means business investing. It means you do the same thing buying pieces of a company that you would do going out and becoming a Domino's franchise. Hmm. You're going to work it the same way. And if you start thinking of it like Meaning an that there's sort of a set of universal principles that you can apply to various kinds of investing or business building. Precisely. And now as a 22-year-old as a guy um, with no experience in business, he relied on Domino's to teach him what those principles are. Because Domino's had been doing this for many, many years and had learned the hard way what those basic principles of a what of a successful Domino's pizza shop are that you must have in order to be successful. And they taught him those things. And then they looked over his shoulder and made sure that the critical things were in place before he got the right to get his first store. Because mm -hmm. they want him to be successful, right? Well, it's a very unusual thing to say that investing in the stock market can have the same principles as building an actual brick and mortar style business. Not a lot of people say that. You no. know, you hear you hear people talking about stock investing like it's this complete other world from actual business building and business running. And and I think for a lot of people that's because it is. The reason they buy a stock is very different from the reasons they would buy a private business. Yes. And taking that as um, as a strategy, that view of the stock market as a strategy means, in my view, and we've had this discussion, I know you disagree, but in my view, that's not investing. That's just speculation. You don't know anything about what you're doing. And so in order to uh, overcome your own admitted ignorance, you massively diversify. And then you're at the mercy of the market continuing to go up. You're totally at the mercy of the market. And I'm telling you, if you're 65 years old and you're at the mercy of the market in a broadly diversified portfolio, when hopefully you realize that the market is fully capable of going nowhere for 20 years, except up and down, then you could be in a situation where that form of so-called investing, what I would call pure speculation, could just murder your retirement. I don't think we disagree on that. I think where we disagree is the line between investing and speculation. But my definition of making an investment is having a clear reason for doing so with data that you've decided you trust and knowing 
what you're getting into and when to get out. Like having a plan, having some, having a set of expectations and having reasons for those expectations to be reasonable. That's what I consider investing. And you think that venture capital consists of speculation, I would call venture capital investing. But I think if you're somebody who just has no idea what's going on and I'm just gonna buy a whole bunch of stocks because that's what you're supposed to do or I'm gonna buy the market because that's what you're supposed to do and I don't know anything about when I'm gonna get in or when I'm gonna get out. You, you Basically, you have no reason for doing anything. I would call yes, I would say that is pure speculation. So I don't think we disagree on that. Uh, I, I agree, we, we, we in general agree. So looking at this as a as a Dondo investor to take Monesh's uh, view and go read that book. I mean, honestly, that is a great book. And, and I started reading it the other day. I'm excited and, about it. And I don't know if we've plugged Guy Spears book enough here, but I got to tell you that that guy wrote an absolutely brilliant book called, what uh, you know. It's called The Education of a Value Investor. Yep. It's um, one of the most beautiful books I've read recently, and I would recommend. I've been recommending it to everybody I know. Yeah, I, I think really. It's, I think it's a, an, an absolutely extraordinary thought process of how value investing can affect your entire life, the parts of your life that are not the investing parts. I mean, we should use this book as a model for our podcast. I think and. I, I, you know, maybe, maybe you could. I mean, I read that book and I thought this is what our podcast is already about. I mean, <laughs> we're all, we are on the same page. Yeah, exactly. And I, listen, you're over in Zurich these days. So go, go get Guy's permission to, to steal from his book liberally. And I'll bet you he's cool with it. Um, I don't, I don't need to steal from his book. Well, I'll just borrow. I'll borrow. Just borrow, borrow, borrow is fine. And mm -hmm. I think, I think he would be okay with that. Um, just as Monash Prabhai would be okay with that, because you know Monash just says, "Look, I'm a cloner. I'm a, I'm the, I, I copy the best investors in the world." And of course, Monash and Guy are famous because they combined to pay an enormous amount of money. I, I think seven or eight hundred thousand, maybe a million dollars. I'm not sure to have lunch with Warren Buffett. I mean, these guys are seriously disciples of this style of investing that we're trying to teach here. And um, and I got I got to tell you, you, you can learn an enormous amount of money from Uncle Guy and Uncle Monish, <laughs> because Warren doesn't write books about this stuff. He, he has a dialogue with investors that are comprised of these brilliant letters that he writes every year uh, for Berkshire Hathaway that go back, you know, into the 60s. And you should read them because they're wonderful. But Monash has taken his point of view and Guy's taken his point of view and they put together brilliant, brilliant books that help you understand the guts of this kind of investing, which is the importance of understanding the business, the importance of what Monash calls a free lottery ticket, something with a lot of upside and very little downside to it. Um, and the importance of the head game, the, the, the willingness to be patient, to wait in and, and be patient. You have to think, how patient is Charlie Munger? He's 92 years old, 92 years old. The guy probably doesn't buy green bananas. And this guy has not put <laughs> money in the stock market. He hasn't bought a stock for over two years. He's waiting for an opportunity to come into the market at a great price. This is a discipline that you take to your grave, clearly. Bought a stock in two years? Maybe longer. Wow. Yeah, that's significant, don't you think? 
Yeah. Because I know, you know, you're... Our, our four principles guru is is doing nothing. Well, okay. He's not doing nothing. He's not doing... I take it back. I take it back. I take it back. He's doing his practice. He's learning about companies that are out there, I'm sure. He's not buying green bananas. He's not speculating. <laughs> He's buying yellow bananas. He has a lifetime of discipline of not speculating. And that requires that you wait patiently for something that you understand to go on sale. Charlie said once that his greatest strength is knowing what he doesn't know and not going there. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about that. It's very hard to get to that point. Yeah, but he's there. And so knowing what he doesn't know, he's not attracted by things that appear to be on sale. Like he hasn't bought oil stocks. He hasn't bought coal mines. These things are, you know, in one view, stunningly on sale. But these are not areas that Charlie's particularly interested in or feels that he has an expertise in. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he's waiting for the things that he does understand to come around. And he knows from investing since he's, you know, in his teens, and we're talking about 70 plus years of investing here, that they do come around. When you get the long picture, when you've done this for a lot of years, you see that the market indeed goes through these cycles. And if you are only just patient, the market will come through a cycle where you can snap up a lot of great companies super cheap and you don't have to be brilliant. You know, that's cool. That, I mean, I don't know if it's cool that he hasn't bought anything in two years, but it makes me feel a bit better about the timing of me coming to this because I, if, we were, if, if I were sort of showing up to the party at a moment when everyone's buying stuff and it's a really good time to buy value stocks, I would feel like I'd have to rush and I'd feel like I'd have to like learn as much as I can really quickly so that I don't miss out on this moment in time when you can buy a bunch of stuff that's at a lower price than its actual value. And because we're not in that moment, I feel like I have a bit more time to figure this stuff out. You know, the classic thing about this is that when we are in that moment, it will feel like it's a very scary time to put money in the stock market, that no one is putting money in the stock market. Everyone knows you can't make money in stocks. Everyone knows it's really scary. Everyone knows that it can keep going down like a brick. Anybody that's buying stocks at that point in time is going to be accused by their friends of trying to find the bottom, you know, trying to think that they know more than the rest of the world and they're going to try to figure out that there's time to buy the bottom of the market and that no one can do that. And therefore, you know, you just have to diversify and stay in if you're already in. And if you're not already in, you're going to be terrified to put money in. That's 2009. I believe it. I believe it. I mean, that's the most recent one, 2009, right? Market was down 50% in a period of about a year and a half. And, and believe me, nobody was in this market um, when I started coming back into it, right? And at least on, on well, hindsight, you can see was, people were. Was Charlie Munger? Charlie Munger was snapping up companies. Well, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. <somebody. laughs> Absolutely, he was. And so was Warren Buffett. And that, you know, that's how you do it. But I'm telling you, the emotion at the moment, you can always tell when it's time to buy companies because you've got everybody and their neighbor saying it's not. You know, that's interesting. It makes me think of, of Guy Spears' book because he specifically talks about the um, influence of people around you and their emotional energy um, and stress around the stock market. 
affecting your own investing decisions. And he specifically took himself very consciously took himself out of New York and out of the whole like Wall Street scene and took his whole family and went to Switzerland because he wanted to just get away from that collective energy of stress and of of sort of collective thought that comes out of that stress of like everybody being like, we're selling, we're selling, we're selling. And you start to think, oh, maybe I should sell. And he just wanted to get totally out of that so that he could make his own decisions. Yeah, I think doesn't Guy point out that, you know, Warren Buffett is doing this in Omaha. Yeah, he does. Exactly. And, 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 and his is point is Irvine. like he had to he had to put himself in the right situation for him. Yeah. And we all need to find, you know, to the extent that we can, we can't just all pick up and move. But to the extent that we can create that little cocoon where we um, can really just reflect on ourselves and, and, and not be influenced by stress energy of other people. I think it's hugely important. I think it's one of the reasons I've been pretty successful is because, you know, you, you grew up in Fairfield, Iowa and Jackson Hole, Wyoming and a long way from the big city. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you have an opportunity to go to NYU and and, uh, and live in the city. It's cool um, <laughs> to cool. do that. <laughs> but if you're going to be an investor, being in New York, being in centers of finance like London, New York, um, can make your it can twist your head. You can yeah, I can up. completely I can completely see it. We could all see it. You know, I mean, it's true, not just of Wall Street. It's true of of various smaller microcosms. It's yep. true of like, you know, if you're going through a bunch of family stress, it's stressful to be home with your family. You know, <laughs> it's like, is people around you affect you? And that's for, the basic thought. Sure. It's, it's one of the reasons that going to a, a, a sporting event is so different than watching it on TV. Yeah, I mean, great example. Mostly television gives you a much better view of what's actually going on uh, with the players. But, you know, there's this thing that happens in the crowd that's just... Yeah. Group the collective consciousness. consciousness. Yeah, yeah, collective consciousness. And that's definitely what happens in New York City. And one of the beauties of sort of joining this extended family of, of uh, Warren Buffett ruler type investors is that you have people to look to who are investing. You can see their portfolios over time. I know we've talked a little bit about being able to get out the, uh, the portfolios of great investors and, and see what they're actually doing. We'll talk more about that later. But... Um, being able to have the being able to know that Charlie Munger isn't buying stocks aggressively, to know that Warren Buffett isn't buying stocks aggressively, um, that's really important to keeping your head screwed on straight. So you want to you want to embrace the collective consciousness of great investors and ignore the collective consciousness of your basically CNBC traders mm -hmm. who are very active in the market. And, and uh, therein lies the rub. <laughs> and therein, they make much more noise. Using out there. your own judgment yep. to decide who to look to. Yep. So let's let's take one more look at value here, um, and and then we can move on because I wanted to show you sort of the Ben Graham view of value. That this goes back into the idea back in the '30s and the Depression that you could buy companies at unbelievably cheap prices. Now we start onto this by what's called the zombie. Uh, analysis zombie being like like we said just a company is treated like it's dead uh, although it's actually alive and so let me talk a little bit about what happens when a company is dis uh, is 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 when it dies if a company were to die in other words not not a forced death where somebody's going to shoot you but where you've decided you're going to shut down the company for whatever reason. 
what will happen is that you will look to the balance sheet of this company that's no longer going to be operating. Therefore, the value of this business is no longer about the cash flow. It's okay. There won't, there won't be, be any. any. There okay. won't be any. So now you have to have a new way to look at the business. And the way we're going to look at the business is by looking at the value of the things that the business owns. You know, what does it own and what is that stuff worth? And the the the, the amount of debt that the that the business has, you know, what what do we got to pay off here? And Okay, so essentially it's like you're shutting down the company. Yep. And you're just going to sell it off for what's there. Yep. That's okay. right. Winding so it down. You're, you're winding it up. You're winding, you know, it's winding, winding up. You're winding up. The, you're winding up the company. Uh, you guys, the lawyers get interesting terms. I would say wind down, but you're saying wind up. And well, now I, I have to check it. Maybe it is winding down. Yeah, I, yeah. I think winding up is also appropriate. It's like, okay, let's wind up the affairs of this. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. exactly. But now I have to Google it's it. It's not intuitive. But zombie is very intuitive. It's one of my favorite terms, though, because it's like, it's so evocative. It's like, oh, yeah, you're just sort of like taking everything, putting it all in a big circle in your living room and just like letting people take what they want and give you the prices they're going to give it's, you. And, it's oh, out of Africa. And then at the end, it's all wound up. It's out of Africa. It's it's, uh, um, it's what's out of Africa. What's the, what's the actress's name in Out of Africa? It's it's. All I can remember is the actual person's name, which was yeah, okay. Isaac Dennison. Okay, so it's Isaac Dennison with all of her worldly goods on her lawn after the fire burns down her entire coffee plantation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you remember she's she's trying to get the governor to give the the it's workers such there an this... old reference. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't spoil the movie for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> So we're, we're winding up, we're winding down, we're finding zombie. And so you're going to put everything you own out on the out on the lawn and you're going to sell it off. And so here are the things that, let's say, that the lemonade stand owns. It owns a bank account with $3 of cash in it. It owns an accounts receivable um, where a dollar is owed to it. These are all per share stuff. So people owe it money from lemonade that they bought. And they owe okay, it wait, 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 wait. Can you say those numbers again? Sure. We own a bank account with cash. Awesome. Do That's we know a, how much cash is in it? $3 oh, per okay. share, per share. Oh, okay. This is all per share. And we've got money that's owed to us. That's called an accounts receivable. And that's a dollar. And by the way, all of this will be on the lemonade stand balance sheet. This is what the balance sheet is. Is it basically supposed to tell you how much money you'd have left if you wound up the affairs of the business um, and liquidated, uh, how much you'd have left, which is called the equity of the business. So that starts with the first piece of this is called the assets. And this is what Isaac has on her lawn, all the stuff, bank account, okay. uh, what people owe you, your inventory of lemons and sugar, um, your Lemonade stands, uh, any lemonade stands that are under construction, um, all the equipment that you use to squeeze lemons with. So I'll give a value to each of these. Cash, $3. Accounts receivable, a dollar, $3 of inventory. Inventory, three bucks. Lemonade stands, $2 of lemonade Wait, stands. There's no line on accounting statements called lemonade stands. 
No, but there'll be a line called, you know, equipment. And, equipment? Okay. Yeah. There might be a line called plant. So the lemonade stands would be our plant. Okay. You know, our, How much is that one? Two dollars. Okay. And our equipment is a dollar. Got it. And then there's a strange line on their balance sheet assets called goodwill. Also known as, uh, sometimes you'll see it as intangibles. So I just want you to know the three names that you see for this. Goodwill, intangibles, and cost in excess. Those three things are on balance sheets. Just depends on what the accountants are used to writing down. They all pretty much mean the same thing. Okay. And what they mean is that typically what happened is the company bought another company and they paid more than the equity value of the business. In other words, what was on the books, they paid more than that. And since the more that they paid isn't on the books anywhere, they can't put that on their books as cash or account receivable or inventory or plant. There's nowhere for it to go because it isn't any of those things. It's really the cost of the business in excess of the book value of the business or equity of the business. So they now call that goodwill, cost in excess, or intangibles. I'm not an expert on this, so don't quote me on this one, but I also think that that is where intellectual property values tend to go um, because they are not technically equipment or inventory, but they can, depending on the kind of company, they can be incredibly valuable assets of a company. I completely agree. So if a company like Kraft Foods was sold, it would have all of these brands that had been built up over the years that are very valuable in grocery stores, and it would apply that to intangibles. Right, 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 right. Yep. Or like patents right. could be. Patents could be in there. So it isn't to say it's not really valuable. It's to say that there was no place um, where an accountant could look at this stuff, send an auditor over and say, oh yeah, those are worth X, right? You yeah. can do that with there cash. Might, there might be another line on, on statements where, where things like patents and trademarks go. I'm just, I'm just not an expert on that stuff, but um, it might also go under goodwill. Let's, let's put it there for now. Yeah. So we're gonna say that that stuff is worth a dollar in, okay. in this one. So now we add this up and we get 313, that's, seven, eight, and nine, 10, 11. We get $11. Yes, we do. Okay, so th again, this is on a per share basis. So this is $11 of assets. When you look at real balance sheets, they're not on a per share basis. They're just the whole company. But we wanted to keep everything on the same apples to apples here. So we've got $11 of assets. In other words, if you, if you looked at a balance sheet, it would say you know millions or billions of dollars and you wanted to know what it was per share, you just divide by the number of shares and it would tell you. So in this case, $11 is the total assets of the company. Now, the next chunk of the balance sheet is liabilities. That is just what do you owe people? Um, and on this one, we only have two lines. We have accounts payable. Um, and in this case, we've already paid all of our accounts payable. So there's just zero there. Wait, you mean like our lemonade stand has in particular or everybody doing zombie value? Um, well, everybody doing zombie value will have accounts payable on their on their sheet. But um, most of them actually have people that they have to pay. We just happen to have paid it all off. We're, we're good. In we're our lemonade stand. In our lemonade stand. 
So we don't owe any of our vendors any money at all, okay? Now, below that is another line um, called, in most balance sheets, it'd be called long-term debt or long-term loans. Now, in our case, we have one here because we bought a little company, another lemonade stand that was encroaching on our turf and we just wanted to get rid of them. So we bought them out and we paid for them. Um, doesn't really matter what we, well, actually we paid $2 for them. That's where the dollar of goodwill came from and uh, some of our assets. And we took out a dollar loan. So we have a purchase loan of $1 that is being carried by the people we bought the, the company from. Okay, so that's a dollar there? That's a dollar of debt. Okay. So we total up all of the what we owe and it totals to $1. One dollar yep. of debt. Now, we subtract what we owe from what we own that we own $11 and we owe a dollar. So we subtract that dollar from 11 and we get equity, which is $10. Yep, got it. Equity just means what do you actually own of this business? And if you wanna just do it the way accountants do it, you add liabilities and equity and that should equal assets. That's how they work it. And that's actually the bottom line of a balance sheet is the two added together, equity plus liabilities equals assets. So we have a situation here where our equity is $10. Now make a little note here for some Wall Street jargon. That's the same thing as book value. Oh, okay. All right, so that's book value. Equity and book value are the same. So you might see it under different terms, but it's the same thing. So now we know what our book value is. Our book value is $10, okay? Our equity is $10. Now we wanna figure out the zombie value. The zombie value is a conservative view of what this business is worth if we sell everything off and pay off the liabilities. And you notice we have cash for $3, we know we're owed a buck, we know we got inventory of $3. We know we've got plant for $2 and equipment for a dollar. All of those things are put on our balance sheet by certified public accountants who understand that they have to make a price that's what that would be worth over the next year. So if they think that, the, that, that our equipment isn't really gonna be worth a dollar over the next year, then they have, to re, they have to lower it to the price they think is correct. Okay. In other words, Everything up there, with the exception of goodwill, is pretty auditable, audible by, auditable? Auditable. Auditable by the CPA, the accountants. They can go out there and look at what- Goodwill is too, to, to some extent. Goodwill is also. But in this it's case- It's more amorphous. It's more amorphous enough to where we are going to subtract it from uh, equity. So- oh. What we're gonna find is another number that's called tangible book value. Tangible book value. So we have book value or equity of $10. Tangible book value is the equity or book value of the company minus those amorphous sorts of numbers that are in the assets. The intangibles. The intangibles. 
Okay, so now we're down to $9. We're down to $9. That's called tangible book value. And that's also known as the zombie value. Oh, okay. So if the accountants have been accurate in their appraisal of the value of the assets, the liabilities are always accurate, then you end up with a tangible book value of $9. If the goodwill turns out to be worth more than, a do- than, than zero, then great, we'll, we'll have more money. But if the goodwill is zero and the accountants have done a good job, we sell off this stuff at the, on our lawn with Isaac in, in, good, in, in, in out of Africa, and we will have $9 left. That's our tangible book value. Got it. Now, this is kind of cool to know because if you're interested in buying a bank, it's good to know that banks trade on some version of tangible book value. People like just, their, stock, their stock price Their stock price trades, trades there. Yeah. So, you know, if you can buy a bank for lower than tangible book value, let's say 90% of tangible book value. In other words, if you shut down the bank tomorrow and sold everything off, you'd make 10 cents on your dollar, on your Wouldn't 90 cents. Wouldn't that be true of any company? Well, Isn't that the point? That's the point, right. But banks are actually priced in the market as a public company, often priced at that price. Oh, okay. Let me show you how different this is from... Uh, the lemonade stand. Okay. Tangible book value or zombie value of the lemonade stand is $9. Our other view of the market value of this company or the, the, the margin of safety value is that the 10 cap shows we should pay about 80. The payback time free cash flow shows eight years shows we should pay no more than 115. And our margin of safety is 93. In other words, this, this business could be worth 150, 180 bucks a share. $160 a share, something like that. We want to pay a, a margin of safety price of about half that. We've got three views of valuation, one at 93, one at 115, and one at 80. And those yeah. are a long, long way from nine bucks. Oh, I was waiting for you to get to a part where there's a multiple that gets us up to that area. Nope, no multiple. Nine bucks. How is that useful? I mean, it's so far different. Well, the first thing is, I just said, banks often sell at tangible book value. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Banks sell around tangible book value. I think right now you can buy Wells Fargo for about 1.5 times tangible book value. Maybe two times tangible book value. So companies do sell for tangible book value, particularly financial kinds of companies. So the, the point of this is to understand how deep the discount was for Ben Graham back in the 1930s when he was buying companies for below tangible book value, that's pretty significant, right? Huge. Huge. I mean, and, it's just so different. It's so massively a different number yeah. that I'm, I'm struggling with it and well, how to use it. Try this out for size. If you were to see an industry get pounded down into the dirt by some a major event that's happening, it is entirely possible that those companies which have distressed earnings, the, the payback time might be really long, but you know the, the, ten, the cap rate might be almost un, uncalculable because they don't have earnings. They may be selling for substantially lower than tangible book value. And one of those industries right now where companies are selling everywhere for less than tangible book value is the coal industry. Okay, okay. So right now you can buy coal mines for about... 30% of tangible book value. 
Wow. Yeah. Because first off, you've got to try to figure out is the are the assets of the coal mine actually worth what the accountants are saying they are? Well, right. I mean, if nobody uses coal anymore, exactly. <laughs> if the industry dies. If the industry dies, then really are, there's no value to the coal mine at all. Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's probably just a liability there. So that's why they get sold clear down like that is because there's really serious fear around the true value of the business. Um, but the, there's a reason why the, the accountants are putting the value of the coal mine above zero, and that's that it continues to be a really important part of our energy structure. And if somebody like Donald Trump gets back into the business, you're going to see coal mines come alive because he's promising coal miners that they are going to get back in business again. <laughs> the magical Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. So I, in other words, this is where you could search for what's called deep value by looking okay. and searching for tangible, you know, below tangible book value. You're going to find some things that are out there. I mean, you're going to find it by doing the other three methods because it's going to be 10% of the other three methods. And but, you're but going you, to go, this is extraordinary. Now you won't find it because you're going to be looking, you're going to be doing screens that we'll talk about how to use these screens down the road. You're going to be screening for companies based on different ways of looking at the value. So if you're screening for margin of safety, you need earnings. If you're screening for payback time, you need oh, earnings. Oh, yeah, good point, good point, good point. Yeah, because they're using totally different inputs. Yeah, if the earnings are below zero, you know, you know, they, then you're, gonna, you're not going to find them. So there is a search for this kind of business that I'll just tell you right now, and we'll tell, we'll tell you how to use it later. It's called the net-net screen, net-net. And what it's looking for is the ability to buy, that a company has a price below the price of the working capital of the business, which means you take your cash, your accounts receivable, your inventory that can be converted in one year, and you subtract all of your obligations for, for this next year, and you get a number, and you can buy the, you can buy the company for cheaper than that. So what I want to do is think about these four different kinds of valuation, and let's summarize and recap and ask questions next time. Okay. Because I feel like I want to think about how they relate to each other and how we can use them in a more efficient way. Um, if we have to do all four of these every single time, which I suppose we do, um, just just how to go about that smoothly. This is this is a little bit of a tough place, but this is. Um, I just want to let you know something really important here, Danielle, and that is that it's part of our process that we take a look at value uh, multiple ways, and no one really knows for sure how Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger look at value per se. You know, it's like they they basically say, look, if it doesn't jump out and hit you in the face that this is super on sale, then you probably don't know enough about the business to be messing with it. And I think that's a really good that at the end of the day, these are some ideas that I use about how to get to value. I think Guy Spear probably does something different. Monash probably does something different. But we end up looking at the same companies. And the, the truth of the matter is that if, if it doesn't leap out at you that this business is crazy on sale, then either it isn't or, or you don't know enough about or it. Or you don't know enough, yeah, which is far more likely. Yep. So keep in mind when it comes to value in a business that we're looking to jump over six inch bars, not leap over six foot bars. Don't don't strain yourself. If, if the company just doesn't offer itself up as being vastly on sale, then 
don't bother with it. Go to the stuff you're capable of understanding and wait patiently until Mr. Market fluctuates enough to put that company stupidly on sale. So for example, with Chipotle Grill, which we've talked about, it's dropped from $760 down to $400 roughly. And I've looked at the value of this thing and from one perspective at 400 bucks, this is pretty on sale um, from a margin of safety point of view. Um, assuming that they can continue to grow at 19%, assuming they overcome these short-term problems, that company's probably on sale. Um, but when I get around to looking at it as a piece of real estate with a 10 cap, it's not even close. You know, mm. that, that company needs to go down below $300 before I could get excited about it as being super on sale. In well, that's something we should talk about is how to use the, the different together. kinds of, yeah, exactly. Exactly, See, when they're coming up with different answers. That company in 2009 was on sale through all the different criteria that I wanted to use. So how about we take that and we'll look at it down the road. We'll look at it next time. We'll take Chipotle Grill in 2009 when I, when I bought in and we'll take it in 2016 when I won't. Okay. And see Perfect. what the difference is. Same company, great company. Why not now? Okay? okay. Good. Cool. All right, well... Until next time, time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting all you got to do is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.